to the Unlearning Podcast. I am your host, Ashley Lynn Hanks, and I am so grateful you joined me today on today's episode. If you're a first time listener, I want to thank you for pressing play and for giving this a try, for taking the time to check out this podcast. It requires a lot of courage to examine your beliefs and you have that courage. I'm so grateful you are here. Before I begin, I want to invite everyone to sign up for my mailing list. I'm going to start a newsletter that'll go out every couple of weeks, and this newsletter will be full of more content regarding the unlearning journey. It will have links to my latest episodes, blog posts that I've written, recent sermons I've given with tips and advice on how to grow in Christ as you go on your unlearning journey. So please sign up for that. You can subscribe to my email list by going to my website at ashleylhangst.com or you can find the link to subscribe by going to the link in my profile on Instagram at ashleylhanks.com. My name is spelled H-E-N-G-S-T, so that is Ashley, the letter L, and H-E-N-G-S-T. So let's connect. I'd love to connect with you. Well, I'm excited to get started today. For those of you who may not know the term martyrdom, or martyr, it means to lay down your life or to willingly sacrifice your life for a cause or a belief or a deity. Martyrdom is the experience of doing just that. The stories of Christian martyrs and the teaching of martyrdom isn't usually talked about in churches, but it seems to come up in waves. And when it does come up, our pastors encourage us to follow the example of those who have died for their faith. Think about the Fox's Book of Martyrs or DC Talk's book, Jesus Freak, and that book, She Said Yes, over the high school girl who died in the Columbine shooting. We love to honor those who have given their lives for the cause of our faith. In the same way, I would argue that we honor veterans who were killed in combat. Martyrdom is found all throughout scripture. We have the powerful example of Daniel's friends being thrown into the fire for refusing to reject their Jewish faith. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon demanded that everyone, even non-Babylonians, bow down and worship the golden statue that he put up in honor of himself. When Daniel's friends refused to do so, the king threatened to throw them into a fiery furnace. What was the response to such a powerful threat? If our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and out of your hand, O king, let him deliver us. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods and we will not worship the golden statue that you have set up, end quote. That's from Daniel chapter 3, verses 17 through 18. Now, I love this story because these young men put their confidence in the goodness of God, and they know that the goodness of God is present even if they die. That's a powerful conviction to have, and it's definitely admirable, especially since the king does end up throwing the three men in the fire for their faith. From the book of Acts, we know the powerful story of Stephen, who was brutally killed for his faith. 
Stephen was accused of blasphemy. The religious leaders at that time accused him of saying that Jesus was going to come back from heaven and destroy Jerusalem, and I quote, the customs that Moses handed on to us, end quote. That's from the tail end of Acts chapter 6. Stephen's response to these false accusations is a glorious sermon about the history of the Jewish faith and how Christ is the great Redeemer, the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for. And the high priests and the council, they killed him in response. Right before they stoned him to death, Acts chapter 7, verse 57 says, They covered their ears, and with a loud shout, they all rushed together against him. Then they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Stephen's martyrdom is tragic, but it's inspiring. And if you have time this week, I encourage you to read Stephen's sermon slowly and to read the response of the religious rulers just as carefully. I think you'll find this event surprisingly enlightening. Now, I definitely believe in the importance of having deep spiritual convictions The depth of faith of the Jewish friends in the book of Daniel and Stephen in the book of Acts and countless others is a call to action for all of us. If you don't stand up for something, you will fall for everything. This is true regardless if you're a Christian or not. Having deep convictions, a hill you are willing to die on, is a powerful thing and it can deepen our experience of meaning in life. Although I believe in the power and importance of honoring martyrs, I have seen the stories of martyrdom taught and preached in a very manipulative way. First of all, we are only told stories of martyrdom from a select group of people. I would say that 99% of us have only heard stories of white, probably male, Christian martyrs. We know almost nothing about black Christians who have died or LGBT Christians who have died on their way to church. And so we are given this story of martyrdom that paints for us white saviors like Jim Elliott. And we are told that this level of obedience is what we should live up to. We read from scripture that suffering and religious persecution are something to be grateful for. Blessed are the persecuted. In Matthew chapter 5. And if the world hates you, I quote, know that it has hated me. John chapter 15, verse 18. And for the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions. 2 Corinthians 12, 10. And in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, it says, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, end quote. So these are actual verses in the Bible. And instead of interpreting this kind of attitude towards persecution in a healthy way, in an inspiring way, we hear it as evangelicals, as a demand to endure suffering. I truly believe that the evangelical treatment of martyrdom fosters a kind of codependency among conservative Christians. This is where my talk today or this episode can be kind of confusing, so please, please stay with me. 
I believe that the evangelical treatment of martyrdom fosters codependency among conservative Christians. Now, unless you're a psych major or experience codependency yourself, you might not know what I'm talking about. Codependency is the experience of being codependent upon other people or other communities. It is the opposite of living independently. For example, you'll hear a lot of people who are newly in love say, I can't live without so-and-so. Or, I would die if they broke up with me. I don't know who I am without so-and-so. That, those kinds of thoughts, that, that's being codependent. Or when you are overly upset or overly angry or frustrated because someone did not do what you want them to do, the overreaction, the excessive sensitivity to it is an experience of codependency. Living codependently may not sound bad or toxic, but it is, in a sense, a kind of obsession or enslavement. We also, this kind of codependency comes out, I think, most clearly when you see people stay in abusive relationships. We teach this kind of martyrdom theology so that people will gladly be martyrs in their marriages or in their jobs or in their families. But whenever we teach Christians that they should expect suffering, that they should expect hardship, that it is their Christian duty to love their enemies, to turn the other cheek, to bless those who curse them, to count it all joy when they are being hurt by others, we foster a mental illness called codependency. It is important to love your neighbor. It is also important to report your neighbor to the police when they harass you. It is important to forgive your spouse. This is the way of love. It is also important to your mental health and well-being to leave your spouse if they are constantly emotionally manipulating you or physically abusing you in any way. Many Christian pastors, particularly Southern Baptist pastors, will condemn women for leaving their husbands or adult children for no longer having contact with their abusive parents. We are taught over and over and over to forgive and forget, forgive and forget. What forgiveness and forgetfulness really mean are endure it. Just endure it. Just endure the pain. Just take it. Stop complaining. Forget you were ever abused and do it over and over and over again. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 15? If you love me, you will what? Obey me. And as evangelicals, we are taught to count it all joy when we are being bullied or hurt or in pain. We are taught to give what we do not have, to go the extra mile, to give and even give when we have nothing to offer. And to understand that kind of willing submission to pain and suffering as the mark of true discipleship. Anything else, anything else is cheap grace. This is toxic. This is incredibly toxic theology. 
There is nothing wrong with having strong convictions, having spiritual convictions, deeply abiding values. These are these are good things. That's these are this is honorable. We live in such a postmodern nihilistic society that it's hard to find people who believe in anything anymore. But willingly suffering, especially when it taxes your own mental health and well-being, that is not the way of Christ. That has never been the way of Christ. The way of Christ, the way of love, has never been the way of constant and endless suffering. It just isn't. Remember that Jesus healed people. He never said, just keep suffering, just endure it. Jesus healed people. Jesus preached reconciliation between the Jews and the Gentiles. Jesus connected people who were disconnected by race, class, and gender, and strengthened connection and belonging. Who is my mother and who are my brothers, Jesus asked in Matthew chapter 12, verse 48. Pointing to his disciples, he said, here is my mother and my brothers. The Christian life is the abundant life, but it is not a life of perpetual comfort and bliss. We know this. The Christian life requires grit and spiritual strength to forgive and believe the best about others. It requires deep faith in the goodness of God so that you can grow and so that you can grow in your love for God and for other people. But even though the Christian life is not a life of comfort, it is not a life of martyrdom. You should not pursue comfort every single second of every day, but you don't need to pursue suffering as well. Here are a few passages in scripture that highlight the abundant life God intends for you. For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for harm, to give you a future and a hope. Jeremiah 29, 11. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your needs in parched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters never fail. Isaiah 58, 11. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Romans 15, 13. Jesus said, the thief has come only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. John 10, 10. And finally, every good and perfect thing comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. James 1, 17. Our lives are not meant to be lives of suffering and pain. We are meant to live a life of joy, peace, and generosity. We were meant to live an abundant life. We are meant to enjoy the good gifts of our creator. What does this mean? This means your emotional and physical well-being are important to God. This means you don't have to give up 10% of your gross income to obey God. This means you can leave a church if it isn't feeding you spiritually or challenging you to mature in Christ. This means if you have an abusive husband or an abusive wife, you can leave, even if that abuse is emotional or mental. 
It means if you have a boss who is harsh, manipulative, and constantly backstabbing, you can quit. It means if your parents refuse to get help for their self-destructive ways and they continue to hurt and manipulate you and your siblings, you can stop having a relationship with them. Jesus came that we would live life and have it abundantly, which means that God will never call you to ceaseless, unending suffering from another person. You see, many of us have been taught that if we leave our spouse or stop talking to our parents or quit a job, that we are disobeying God, that we didn't have enough faith, enough patience. We didn't trust God enough to redeem the situation. That is totally toxic. By leaving an unhealthy environment, you are saying, I accept what's happening. I accept that I cannot change or control this person or these people. I accept that I can live without them, that this person is not my end all be all. And although I am dependent upon God, I am independent of these toxic people. It's sad to think about this, but sometimes toxic, endlessly hurtful relationships are often found in churches. It's sad, but it's true. If that is the situation that you are in, even if the church is super progressive, please remember that you don't have to stay. Let me encourage you to prioritize your health and well-being and find another community of faith. I just offered up some examples of when Christian martyrdom feeds into a codependent behavior. Now I want to offer up on the flip side when God is calling us to endure hardship. Because not all suffering is bad. Not all suffering is detrimental to your mental health and well-being. Some hardship is really, really good for you. Sometimes the struggle bus is the bus you and I need to be on. So here are a list of experiences in which we should stay, we should endure, we should rely on the grace and strength of God to help us through. We need to endure when we are trying to lose weight, deal with an illness, raise children, develop a healthy, happy marriage, develop community, become anti-racist. When it comes to scaling our businesses or, or recovering from addiction, not endless, pointless suffering that someone is putting upon us, but the struggle to grow and mature, this we should pursue, this we should be grateful for, this we should honor. The things I just listed above are just part of life. They're part of growing and maturing into the person you're meant to be. They are part of growing in the beauty of Christ. An abusive husband is not part of the abundant life. That is the husband's problem and the husband's issue, not yours. This martyrdom mentality that evangelicals often get taught disproportionately affects evangelical women. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul encourages Christian women to stay with their unbelieving husbands because, and I quote, wives for you, for all you know, you might save him. Paul calls women to be submissive and to not teach men, which in turn implies a willing obedience to men, even if they hurt. What's interesting about that passage in 1 Corinthians, where Paul encourages Christian women to stay with their unbelieving husbands, 
is that in this passage, the only bad thing happening is the spouse is an unbeliever. That's not a tragedy. Being married to someone who does not have the same spiritual beliefs as you is not endless suffering. It is not a crazy burden to bear. There's no emotional or physical abuse being tied when you are married to someone who is Jewish, Muslim, or agnostic. But instead of understanding the context of that passage, women are often taught that this verse means they should stay in a toxic, unhealthy marriage because they might save him. Listen, I am saying this with all the love in the world. You cannot, cannot save your spouse. You cannot save your boss. And sometimes you cannot save your church. Healthy relationships are rooted in acceptance and respect. It is not healthy to want to convert or change your spouse. But you can't even save people from toxic, unhealthy behaviors. You can't save them from their rage or their anxiety or their insecurity. All you can do is pray for them because only the Holy Spirit can save people. Only a trained mental health professional should be trying to help them to get out of that. Not you or me. Your responsibility is to yourself and to those dependents under your care, like children. The only person we should be dependent upon is the person and work of Jesus. We cannot put our trust and happiness in how other people behave. Psalm 118 verse 8 says, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to put confidence in mortals. In Micah chapter 7 verse 5 it says, Put no trust in a friend, have no confidence in a loved one. And in verse 7 it says, But as for me, I will look to the Lord, I will wait for the God of my salvation. Now listen, the Bible is not saying be suspicious of your wife and don't trust your neighbor. What the text is saying is your entire well-being should not be dependent upon other people. We are not meant to be co-dependent. We can have strong beliefs and deep convictions and deep relationships, but they ought to never lead us to a life of endless suffering. We are called to the abundant life, and the abundant life is never a life of ceaseless pain. It's a life of peace and joy despite the general pains of life, despite the general challenges of maturity. As you navigate life and think through the health and well-being of your relationships, seek wisdom. Seek wisdom. Proverbs chapter 2 reminds us that if we seek wisdom and truly seek it with all our hearts, we will find it. We will grow. Christ has come that we might have life and have it abundantly. Don't sacrifice the abundant life to make someone else happy. Be independent. Focus on yourself and trust Christ to help you through as you continue this unlearning journey. And honor the martyrs. Learn their stories. Thank God for their faith. Honor the Christian martyrs. But remember, you do not have to become one. And remember to study the lives of black Christians and mujeristas and the LGBT martyrs. Let their stories remind you that faith comes in many shapes and in many shades of color. And that although their conviction is admirable, no one should have to die for being different or for pursuing genuine equality.
Before I sign off, I want to recommend to you an incredible resource. If you are struggling with codependency or you have a lot of unlearning to do regarding relationships, I want to recommend an amazing daily devotional. No, it's not Oswald Chambers, my utmost for his highest. It's Melody Beattie's The Language of Letting Go, Daily Meditations for Codependence. This devotional is amazing. It's so helpful for people, especially people in deconstruction. I highly, highly recommend it. I read a devotional from this book every day for my own unlearning, and it's been so enlightening. I'll put a link to the book in the show notes, but I would definitely encourage you to check it out. Once again, thank you for joining me on the Unlearning Podcast. I am so appreciative of every single listener. Until next time, my name is Ashley Ann Hanks, and you are listening to the Unlearning Podcast.